0: Shermer High School, Shermer, Illinois.
1: As a parent of teenagers, you know, you think, oh God, what if my kid was in a Saturday detention for nine hours and shit got real? Like, what would they be saying about me?
0: This could be Anywhere USA, Anytime USA.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Untitled Gen X Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the pop culture that raised us. I'm Lori, a writer and pop culture lover who, okay, I'm going to sound like such a dork right now. I can't get over the fact that Kenny Stack, the coolest high school upperclassman the world has ever known, agreed to join me on the pod to discuss the absolute greatest high school film of all time, 1985's The Breakfast Club. But before we get into the detention and universal fear of becoming our parents, I'd like to tell you a little about Kenny. He's a former 90s actor, you might remember from such films as The Silent Force and The Wounded, along with some PBS guest spots. He's also an incredibly talented songwriter and musician, devoted husband and father, and effortlessly cool guy. Welcome to the pod, Kenny.
0: Hi there. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Excited, actually. And and I don't get excited about a lot of things, but I'm excited about this.
1: I'm super excited to have you. In fact, you graduated two years before Kate and I. We were all in drama together in high school. Yes. And you were the coolest guy to us in high school. Did you know that?
0: I didn't know that, no. And It's probably, I wouldn't have believed it anyway. I think it's my (laughs) low self-esteem, but always overrode anything that made me believe I was cool. So I didn't know that.
1: You were very cool to us because you were a very, very talented actor. And you were into the Beatles big time. And you were into music that was more of our parents' generation of music. You had a genuine love for music and theater. And you were just the nicest person person. And we just thought you were so cool. You had long hair. You wore like a leather jacket. These are the things I remember about you, Kenny.
0: Well, those are the important things.
1: (laughs) Okay. And you were just like, I'm a cool guy without having to work that hard to be a cool guy.
0: Well. Uh, th- thank you. I worked very hard, by the way. no, I didn't work. I, I don't know. That's that's not true. But I mean, to your point about the Beatles, though, it's you know, it's the Beatles are the Beatles, right? Uh, you right. you love them, and they're amazing. And of course, I was a fan since sixth or seventh grade. So it wasn't really cool to really like the Beatles at that age. Uh, I remember getting into some uh, arguments with classmate in class, and she was more of a goth gal and she was like, You like the Beatles? They're so dorky. They're so old. And I got in this argument because she was like into the cure and all that. I love the cure now. Of course. At the time I was like, wait a minute. My my logic was, did you know if there was no Beatles, there'd be no cure? I'm like, that's what right. Kind you of were defense making that, that argument.
1: Yeah. In <laughs> fact, like today I'm wearing an Elton John shirt right now. He's my all-time favorite. So uh, yeah I was super into Elton John at the time, but like I didn't go spreading it around because I didn't feel confident <laughs> enough in it. Whereas you were like, I love the Beatles and I make no apology. Right. Well, I have to tell you, I dug out my 1992 yearbook to see if you signed it. Because, you know, I was a sophomore and you were a senior and we were in drama class together. Yes. And you signed it, Kenny, and I would like to read it. I'd like to dissect what you wrote line by line.
0: <laughs> Do I just listen or can I... Can I- Defend it, or can I say word? Oh, yeah,
1: no, no, it's nothing bad. I mean, thank God. If it was, I wouldn't have brought... Well, maybe I would have
0: brought it up on the pod. (laughs) It would have been a good pod if it was bad.
1: It would have made for for a good pod, yeah. Okay, so it says, by the way, your penmanship, it's a little like a doctor, I have to say. (laughs) Is it still...
0: And not too long ago, I was looking at, the, my my father gave me a, a bunch of old documents from my elementary class. Always in the comments was my penmanship needed work from the like, <laughs> third grade or second grade. My penmanship was really bad. Well, so,
1: I have to tell you, I was talking to Pat, Kate's brother, who's going to be yeah. on an episode coming up here with me. And I told him, oh, I'm recording an episode with Kenny. And he's like... I was in gate with Kenny.
0: I That was part of my whole thing I was going to explain today was uh, that I remember Pat or as Patty as I knew him.
1: Patty as you knew him. sure. When he
0: was on your Star Wars episode, uh-huh. which was, um, I made sure I was, I was anticipating that one when you guys were saying that it was coming up because I yep. had not talked to, I haven't talked to Patty in a long time. He and I, I met him in third grade, fourth grade, and we didn't. Cross paths for many years after that, just kind of maybe we passed in the hallway. But I remember Patty from those days, and I remember him from Gates, the gifted and talented education.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, he remembers you too fondly. So he was excited that we were recording this episode, and particularly The Breakfast Club. But let me get into what you wrote in my yearbook. Nice being in class with you. Well, thank you, Kenny. I appreciate that.
0: It's it's very flowery.
1: Yes, we didn't talk much, but that's okay. It is okay because we're talking now,
0: right? I was already. What was that? Is that am I apologizing? I think I was. I already apologizing by the second sentence. Um, but I that's, mean, okay.
1: that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, <laughs> you are very nice. I am very nice, and you are cute on stage.
0: Oh Aww. Wow. That's so cute, right? That is. It's very nice. Very in touch with my feelings.
1: Yeah. And then you said, keep on working. Wow. Kenny, I have kept on working.
0: You have. And I've admired your work. I've admired your work for all these years.
1: Thank you very much. And then you said, love Kenny Stack. And you drew the John Lennon drawing. And it's awesome.
0: My goodness.
1: That was 29 years ago, dude. (laughs)
0: It's scary because I would write the same thing today. I'm just a one trick pony. I've learned nothing. I would be the exact I would write the exact same thing. So I drew the the John Lennon stencil from Imagine John Lennon. So yes. What's funny is I was not a year later, I was I would turn 18 and I would get the John Lennon stencil on my shoulder as a tattoo.
1: I didn't know that you have that. I do. That's awesome, Kenny. All these years later, are you happy that you have it?
0: Yes. I Good. am I'm not. I don't even notice it anymore. I mean, do you have any tattoos?
1: I don't. My husband says no tattoos are the new tattoo. (laughs) You know, I mean, maybe that's true.
0: Yeah, I would say I can tell you, and this is very uh, maybe sexist of me, but I've never said, you know, that girl's perfect, except I wish she had more tattoos. Like, I've never said that. Mm, I've never. mm
1: -hmm. But, you know, some men probably feel differently.
0: Maybe. Maybe. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just, you know, I like a tattoo on a female like any other guy, I guess, but it's not a thing. I don't miss it. Like, mm.
1: right. Like this is the one thing that's missing.
0: Right. Like, ah, oh, see personality. She's look, she's nice. She's great. Mm, no tattoos. <laughs> no can do. <laughs> no
1: can do. No tattoo. No can do.
0: <laughs> right. That's, <laughs> that's a meme. Somebody's going to put that as a meme and I'll get It'll credit It'll be us.
1: Timestamp. Yes. Nobody take that. Okay. Let's talk Breakfast Club. I asked you, Kenny, let's do an episode on something that was meaningful to you, some pop culture that really just mm, right in your heart. And you chose the Breakfast Club. And I was so glad that you did because it was perfect. We went to high school together. We could identify with different characters here. So thank you for choosing it because it was a really fun rewatch. I smiled like an idiot the whole time I was watching it. I have it on DVD. So I was watching the, like, 30th anniversary edition, and there was this option where you could watch it with trivia. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. Give me that. Like, I'm going to use all that trivia in the pod. And so, yeah, that's what I did. And it was such a fun rewatch. I had watched it maybe about six years ago with my son, and at the time he was, like, maybe 12, Mm. 12 or 13. And he loved it, and he's a hard sell. Even at that age, he loved it. There were a couple of scenes I was like, oh, kind of forgot about that. Felt a little yeah. awkward and icky uh, watching that with him, but he really loved it. And when we talk about it now, he's like, oh yeah, totally love that movie. Like it's just always been. It's such a part of our history and what it means to be a teenager. And what's so great about it is it just crosses all these generational lines. Like It doesn't even really matter if you were Gen X. I think even a baby boomer could identify with parts of this, you know, and certainly millennials and my son, you know, and the Gen Z. You have a 13-year-old daughter?
0: A 13-year-old and 11-year-old. 11,
1: okay. Have you watched it with your 13-year-old?
0: I haven't. I have okay. not yet. I should watch it with my 13-year-old. I tried watching it with my 11-year-old recently, which okay. didn't go over so well because she's not quite, 11 is not quite ready. I mean, I was I was nine when it came out and then I, I was years a couple years older before I actually saw it, but she was hot on it because there was a show on Nickelodeon several years back called Victorious with Victoria justice, Mm -hmm. which I love the show. I don't, I can go on the pod by saying I love that show. It's hilarious. They had a a spoof or a parody on it called the breakfast bunch. And it had, um, (laughs) it had Rob Riggle played uh, the part of Richard Vernon and uh, the the cast of Victorious was on it. And uh, they did an amazing parody Uh, So my, my 11 year old was all hot on it going, I want to watch, I want to watch the breakfast club. I want to watch the breakfast club. And uh, so I said, okay, well, let's, let's watch the movie. And we watched some of it. We started it. And I realized in while watching it and she realized that she got the, she got the gauge on it. Cause again, she's coming in thinking it's going to be somewhat fun and victorious like, and you realize quickly that it starts to become something else. I mean, the animosity, the aggro sort of behavior between John Bender and Andrew and Claire, it all becomes very sort of. It's heavy. Right. So to answer your question, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen more than that with my 11 year old and I have not sat down and watched it with my 13 year old. But again, those icky parts and there's very specific parts that you go, Oh, that's right. It it could, it's going so well. And you go, yeah, it goes to this.
1: The first clue is really the R rating. I mean, I'll yeah. be honest. I I popped it in not thinking twice. I'm like, it, not that my kid hasn't seen R rated films. I mean, please. Right. My 13 right. year old. Right. But I don't know. In talking about like when Allison was saying how she's a nymphomaniac mm-hmm. and all like I was like, oh, oh, uh, uh. it was just one of those sort of awkward kind of situations like let's impregnate the prom queen. Yeah.
0: And that's like 13 minutes in. So it's like it's right. not even it's quick it is and it's you know and then you go don't forget the whole virgin it's like they were very obsessed with the, the virginity,
1: with virginity sure so yeah. obsessed
0: with it and that's i, I can remember I, I, at that age because it's the same time it's you know you are you somehow i don't know if it's because you are by nature or because movies like that are telling you to be concerned about it i don't know but i remember being concerned like it's not cool I don't know. It, and it goes, and maybe I'm jumping ahead, but yeah, there's a whole scene where it's like, oh, it's okay for a guy to be a virgin. Like, it's like, like they're all shocked. What? Like, what? like, my God, like, like you can, <laughs> like a guy has some sort of dominion, whether or not he is or not. There's no female involved in that part of it. But right, right. I digress.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Right. He says, ah, I decided, I, I decided I, wa- I didn't want to be a virgin anymore. It's like, oh, right.
1: Right. Somebody that's has to. That's how that works. Yeah. yeah. That's
0: how that works. <laughs>
1: Okay, well, the film was released on February 15th, 1985, to a little tiny $1 million budget. Crazy. I I mean, I don't even know how a film this fantastic was made on a million dollars. I mean, the set was simple enough. We'll get into that. But it ended up making $5.1 million on the opening weekend, and it has since made $51.5 million in the box office. It's amazing. This film was written and directed by John Hughes, who wrote the original draft in a weekend. Like, oh hey, I have an idea. I'm just going to sit down and whip this thing out real quick. It's amazing. It's amazing. But you know, John Hughes, what a treasure. Yeah. You know, he had written and or directed so many of our favorite movies. Kenny, I'm talking Mr. Mom, 16 Candles, European Vacation, Weird Science, Ferris Bueller, Pretty in Pink, Some Kind of Wonderful. He really got like the teenage part of this right, didn't he? It's amazing.
0: 100%.
1: It's astounding, like how tapped in he was to the teenage psyche. And sadly, John Hughes passed away in 2009. Yeah. So, we no longer have him.
0: Of all those movies you just named, what would be obviously Breakfast Club is number 1, but Yes. What would be your number two?
1: Boy, that's really hard. Um, I think I'm going to have to say some kind of wonderful.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: What's yours? It, that's What's mine. your pick? It is?
0: Yeah, that's mine.
1: I thought you would have said Ferris Bueller.
0: I love Ferris Bueller, but the thing about Ferris Bueller is he's just so popular. And he's just, you know. Yeah. And you go, yeah, I get it. And like, as a guy, you make one or two decisions. When you're watching movies, you go, I don't want to be like him or I am like him. And okay. with Ferris Bueller, I was, I guess I was a little more, I want to be like him. And, but I guess Eric Stoltz's character in some kind of wonderful resonated more with me. I was, Aww. why was that one yours?
1: I just love the story so much. And I just loved the earnest quality of Eric Stoltz's character. His name escapes me at the moment. And and it's sort of like in the same vein as like a Lloyd Dobler. It's that guy who really... He's just a good guy who would really treat a woman well, you know? And it, it, there's an intensity to it that is romantic. If you like a guy, um, it's a little creepy if you don't. Right. right <laughs> yeah. Right. right. Like it could uh, go either way. Yeah.
0: We've all been there. Yeah. Yeah. Like some, like a fine some of us more than others. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. Right. And, and I really like Mary Stuart Masterson's character too. But yeah, I just think that it's a very human story and not an uncommon one. Yeah. So have you ever wondered where the title of The Breakfast Club came from?
0: Of course.
1: Okay. Do you know the answer? Because I do. I do not. So the title came from Hughes' business partner's son who attended a high school where the kids called morning detention The Breakfast Club. Hmm. Now, there were other titles like in the mix with the screenplay and rejected ideas include Library Revolution. (laughs) Yeah, that's not the same. And the Lunch Bunch.
0: Mm, they made a good choice. They
1: made an excellent choice. Good yeah. call. Good call. Yeah.
0: The Lunch Bunch. That sounds like a Nickelodeon show that comes it on does. somewhere between Blues Clues. <laughs> I don't know if Blues Clues and Nickelodeon, but somewhere between Blues Clues and uh, what are the, the I, I forgot those guys' names. But yeah, oh The Lunch God. Bunch. The
1: Lunch Bunch. It sounds like a kids' show. Yeah. Huh. And I don't know if you realize this, but Emilio Estevez, Judd Nelson, and Ali Sheedy went on to play college graduates in St. Elmo's Fire in the very same year, in
0: 1985. Really? Yeah. I have my thoughts about that movie.
1: So I saw that movie a really long time ago, and I only remember bits and pieces.
0: There's a reason that movie doesn't really hold up. It just was such a disappointment. I, for any St. Elmo's oh. Fire fans out there, I, I, I'm sorry, but it, I just could not get into it. I mean, if I have to see Rob Lowe playing that saxophone, <laughs> it just didn't resonate with me. It didn't resonate with me. I won't watch it again. If you if you end up doing a St. Elmo's Fire pod, then I apologize ahead of time, but it's just.
1: If, if I end up doing St. Elmo's Fire, I don't know that that you will be the guest for that episode. You will be the guest for a different episode.
0: I understand that.
1: Okay, should we get into the story?
0: Let's get into it.
1: So we open on a lyric from David Bowie's Changes. Ch-ch-ch-ch-changes. Okay, it says, And these children that you spit on, as they try to change their worlds, are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. Thoughts?
0: Yeah, I have thoughts on it. The first time I actually saw Breakfast Club from beginning to end was on network television. So it was the TV edited version circa 1987. Okay. So I'm still young. I'm 12 or whatever I am. And I'm watching it on television with all the curse word edits that you can, (laughs) the crazy overdub curse word edits. Oh,
1: yeah. It's the actual worst. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, you know, I've recorded on VHS. So I proceeded to watch it a million times. Right. But the beginning, because of my age, even though we already covered, I was a Beatles fan. I wasn't a Bowie fan, and I didn't understand it. I was reading it, going, "I don't know what this. I don't know what this really means, or how it really relates to the Good show, mm-hmm. to the story." It wasn't until years later that I would connect the dots. But yeah, that first scene, and then it, and then it breaks in glass. I thought the, I thought it was amazing. Ali
1: Sheedy apparently was a Bowie fan, and she was listening to the song, and she really liked the lyric, and she showed it to Hughes, and he was like, oh, this is perfect. I'm putting this in the film. Right. We then hear the opening of Don't You Forget About Me. We see the exterior of Shermer High School in Shermer, Illinois, which is actually a fictional place. So Hughes got the idea to name the city Shermer after his hometown of Northbrook, Illinois, which was originally called Shermerville. Hmm.
0: Shermer High School, Shermer,
1: Illinois. Saturday, March 24th, 1984, which was actually 37 years ago. (laughs) This is making us all feel real
0: old. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So this is when we hear Brian's voice. Dear Mr. Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever we did wrong. What we did was wrong. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. What do you care? And you see us as you want to see us, in the simplest terms, in the most convenient definitions. You see us as a brain, an athlete, a basket case, a princess, and a criminal. Correct? That's the way we saw each other at 7 o'clock this morning. We were brainwashed. Okay, that's pretty heavy. That's heavy. So he says that, and you're thinking, okay, we're going to meet some people. We're going to go through some shit. It's mm-hmm. some good exposition of where we're going to go. So what did you think when you heard that?
0: Uh, I thought it was some good exposition. No, I didn't think that at the time. <laughs> I, I did not think that. Uh, my initial thought was, I don't know what a basket case is. So that's me running for the dictionary. I didn't yeah, have Google, not back Google. Back then. Yeah, not, not the, the Google. Yeah, not the Google. Uh-huh. But I love the montage behind the words, as they're sort of setting the the stage with all the high school, the locker, and they have the the photos, and they have these different. I'm eating my head, which I don't even know. I've <laughs> never I, looked that up. I don't I know. Still
1: that don't means. know what it means. I don't yeah,
0: know. I assume it's something dirty. or Yeah, it's
1: probably but. something sexual. I mean, why wouldn't it be right?
0: It's the '80s.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's the '80s. It's high school. So this is when we start to meet our characters, the princess Claire played by Molly Ringwald, arrives to detention in a BMW driven by her daddy. We learn that she's there for ditching class because she went shopping, Kenny.
0: She did. She has to pay the fiddler.
1: She she does. And when it came to casting for Claire, also considered for the role, Laura Dern, Jodie Foster, who Kate and I on every episode were like, freaking Jodie Foster is apparently up for every single role ever. Right. Ever, ever, ever. And Robin Wright. Oh, Next, we meet the brain, Brian, played by Anthony Michael Hall. He's dropped off by his mom and little sister. And that was his real mom and little sister. That's amazing. Isn't that great?
0: And I love that interchange. They're not actors, and to my knowledge, right? Or they maybe they are. but
1: I don't think so. And his mom's like, you know, like, you should be studying during yeah. detention. He's like, um, I don't think. That's what we do in detention.
0: (laughs) Mom, we're not supposed to study. We're supposed to just... Well, you find a way to study, mister.
1: That's what I expect from you.
0: And his sister goes, yeah.
1: Right. So the athlete, Andrew, arrives, played by Emilio Estevez. His dad drops him off. And his dad is, you know, he's that dad. You want to miss a match?
0: That's where Andrew Emilio Estevez has that classic line. Yeah, mom already reamed me, all right? Exactly.
1: Exactly. Okay, this is when we meet John, the criminal, played by Judd Nelson. He walks to school in a trench coat and sunglasses, and he nearly gets hit by the car dropping off Allison, the basket case, because he walks right in front of it. So interestingly, for the casting of John, up for the roles John Cusack, Nicolas Cage, and Emilio Estevez.
0: Mm, Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. I think of the three, Nick Cage, I can see. Me too. Yeah, because he seems a little bit on that same sort of vibe. Uh, The other two, it's, it's kind of a bending of my mind to see Estevez or John Cusack. I can't really see him.
1: Yeah, and in fact, Judd Nelson auditioned for the role in the same gloves, jacket, boots, and attitude, according to the DVD trivia
0: yeah his outfit is' pretty awesome and I will tell you I have a story about me in that outfit um, oh
1: what yeah. tell me
0: so again I already covered that I hadn't I didn't see the movie till years later I did
1: okay uh, I was,
0: and it was the watered down version but I will tell you that aside from the anecdotal or slash uh, the rapier like wit of John Bender uh-huh. the clothes really resonated with me okay so come the year is now 19 I want to say somewhere 88 89 I'm in eighth grade now. I've got a healthy dose of Breakfast Club for over a year on VHS, the TV Right, version. so like
1: on repeat forever, yeah. On
0: repeat forever. And because, um, you know, in, in school, you you go from, so school starts in September, and then you go that first, I'm going to call it the semester, because I believe it's the semester. Okay. You go September to December, then you go on Christmas break, right? Yep. So you go from before school, start of school, clothing rush, at least I did, I don't know if everybody did, where your parents bought you, you know, some clothes. So you had this, I had this skater look that, that spilled over from seventh grade. But then over Christmas vacation between Christmas and uh, it's all Christmas clothes. I went from Quicksilver pants and, you know, P- Palperolto t-shirts to baggy pants uh, with leather boots and oh. uh, flannel shirts, leather jacket. Okay. Yeah. And it was because of the John Bender. It wasn't an exact replica. It wasn't the denim, the tweed, the denim and right. the, the whole look but it was...
1: It was the inspo.
0: It was the... Is, that, is, that, is it the it's inspo? It's the inspo
1: behind the look, yeah.
0: Absolutely. I didn't have the nerve to wear the gloves to school because that was a little too much.
1: Yeah, it was a lot. But
0: it was a lot to wear the gloves. It was. Um, but the rest was definitely... Ins-
1: okay, were you growing out your hair?
0: I was, I was.
1: Now, did you have that, like, what was that? Was it like a bandana around his ankle? <laughs> what What was the story with that?
0: I don't know that there was a story, but I didn't have the nerve for that one either. That okay. was a little too literal. That okay. Too, I had to just borrow. I couldn't fully get the John Bender. I couldn't pull it off either. So I mean,
1: when you returned to school in January as, as a new Kenny, yes. did people say anything? Did people treat you differently? Did you did. feel different?
0: I felt different and mostly shocked with my friends, of course, because they didn't see it coming. It was just kind of like <laughs> all of a sudden. But I think in the same breath, it made sense because it wasn't like I was trying to be something I wasn't. I was always sort of, I was pretty transparent that I was a fan. I mean, you couldn't escape it. But I remember suddenly the goth kids or the kids that were left of center, I'll call them. Maybe they smoke, maybe they don't. They were like, all of a sudden, like, whoa, they didn't come up to me like, what are you doing? They were just more like, all right, dude, nice boots, you know, nice you know. So nice these were jacket. the kids
1: listening to Depeche and The Cure and The Smith.
0: R- right. They weren't listening to The Beatles and The Monkeys. No. Yeah, but. No you know, Elton seven, John. No Elton.
1: No, sadly. So they saw you for the first time, <laughs> if you will.
0: Yeah, they saw a version. They saw the criminal version of me. Yes. Up until that point, they'd seen, I think, the brain and the. Athlete, I think this is the criminal version of me. Okay. Soon to come would be the basket case and the princess, but those, <laughs> those the basket case later. and princess they would come later. That would be much later in the game.
1: Okay, so this is when Allison arrives. The basket case, played by Ali Sheedy, and what cracks me up is that she gets out of the back seat of the car, <laughs> like. And she's wearing like, you know, heavy black eye makeup and her hair, like she's hiding behind big hair. And so for the casting of Allison up for the role was Molly Ringwald and Brooke Shields. Oh, interesting. I don't see either one of them. And Ali Sheedy auditioned for 16 Candles. And when she went in for the audition, she had two black eyes uh, because she got into an accident. She was doing some set building. I don't know what she was doing. I don't know why she was like in play production. <laughs> she was working behind the scenes. In addition to being an actress, I don't know what she was doing. But anyway, so she had a, this accident where she had two black eyes. And the black <laughs> eyes gave her this like sort of goth look, right?
0: Allie, can you grab that scrim right. real quick? Can you jump on that ladder? Just hold I, on. Just... I,
1: we just need some help real quick. Yeah. Yeah,
0: we're going to stop production. <laughs> just, just Miramax can wait. Yeah.
1: <laughs> So, Hughes remembered her with those black eyes looking kind of goth, you know, when he was working on the film and they were trying to work out casting. And he was like, you know what? That looked kind of cool. I'm going to call Allie into audition. Boom. That's amazing. He got the part. Yeah.
0: Well, what throws me off about that scene, uh, all that aside, and you say, you know, she gets out of the backseat, which is funny. I didn't even think about them. You know, she's got these struggles. But her parents still take her to detention. They still drop her off. I mean, they
1: take her. But like, you notice when she gets out of the car and she goes to like, like look at the driver, like the parent. They just drive away.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I love it. And it's so like, it's so classically small moment. Yeah,
1: but it was like so perfect.
0: It's so perfect. It's like they're almost waiting there till she turns (laughs) turns in to go look and they drive away. And then, but I don't know. In my mind, I'm like. Well, your parents took you to detention. Like, I mean, how...
1: John's parents didn't take him to detention.
0: That's what I mean. It's 7 a.m. So presumably the time that we are seeing you on camera, it's 6.45 or whatever it is. Like they got up to take you to detention. <laughs> it's
1: I true. Mean. They did on a Saturday, early on a Saturday. You know, right. I actually, thinking back now to John even arriving to detention at all, I'm actually kind of surprised he went at all.
0: Mm-hmm. That's where that's, it runs deep because, you know, inside his heart-
1: Yeah, we will
0: learn. We will learn.
1: So the students shuffle into the library. They begin to take their seats. And John busts in like a toddler. He's just like destroying shit on the way in. Now, I have to ask you, have you ever been in detention?
0: I have. I have been in detention not many times, but never the morning, but I have been in after school detention.
1: For what?
0: I must have been late to class too many times. I must have just been, and maybe I... Talk You're a too gate much?
1: student, Kenny. I'm disappointed.
0: Yeah, it's ironic you say that. I had to revoke my gate card. Mind you, it was <laughs> three years later.
1: So wait, was this in junior high or high
0: school? Junior high.
1: Okay, I got detention in junior high also. I was such a good kid, Kenny. I was, oh, boy. I was the princess, but mm-hmm. I was like also – I'm not going to say I was the brain because I, I wasn't the smartest kid, but I was the most obedient. And you know why I got a detention? Um you'll never the, guess. Actually, maybe you will guess.
0: You wrote with a red pen as opposed to a blue pen?
1: No. So at our at our junior high middle school. Yes. There was a lawn that you weren't allowed to eat on. It, it, it doesn't make sense. It's outdoor. I'm it's trying to
0: visualize time. where that would be.
1: Yeah. So it was like kind of near the front of the school. And it was lunchtime and not allowed to eat on the lawn. And Kenny, I dared to drink a Capri Sun on the lawn.
0: Oh my goodness. By yourself. All your friends were like, Lori, get over here. You're not supposed to.
1: I got busted and I had to go to detention. And let me tell you, the kids in there were mean. (laughs) I walked in and they're like, who are you? What are you doing here? What did you do? And like, I stated my full name. I told them I drank Capri Sun on the lawn. And they all wanted to hurt me because I had no business being in there. It was ridiculous. And I was a little bit afraid, not going to lie. But yeah, I served my time. I never did it again. (laughs) Uh, I never looked at Capri Suns the same after that. Right. This movie was filmed at Maine North High School in De Plains, Illinois. Hughes wanted to use the library at the school, but it was too small for filming. So they ended up building a library inside of the school's gym. Hmm. And this is also the same school location used for the interior scenes of Ferris Bueller.
0: Yeah. You know what always bothered me about that whole set of Breakfast Club was the front, and this would come later on in the show, in a movie, it would make sense. But those front tables that had the plywoods to block yes. the feet. I know yes. it it Maybe it wouldn't have bothered me, uh, obviously, if I didn't know what was going to happen down there, you know, 30 minutes later. But right. was there a reason not making all of the tables look like that? Why'd you make the front ones look like that and not the rest of them? If you're going to alter it for a specific through line or a story, alter all of them, because I don't think we'd be none the wiser. But instead, you have the ones in on the front that are blocked. I
1: did not even go. clock that.
0: Yeah. Well, you didn't have that VHS. That, I, I that guess I, I didn't. Yeah that I'm pausing going, is the tables
1: different? What's going on? What I thought was strange was like, this is a ginormous library for a high school. Like this looks much, much more like a college library. It's got two levels. It's got 10 billion books in it. There's a statue in there for God's sakes. This does not look like a high school library.
0: Right. I agree with that. The two levels throws me off. That's for sure. Yes. But, you know, our... Junior high school library was pretty large for a...
1: Well, because our junior high school school used to be a high school. Yes. Uh, To our listeners who don't know, the junior high school, middle school that Kenny and I both attended was actually attended by a few members of Motley Crue. It was our claim to fame.
0: It, It was indeed. And I've mentioned that in a couple of different forums.
1: Yeah. Tommy Lee Yes. And who was the other one? Was it Vince Neal?
0: Vince Neil, yes. Okay,
1: because I went to high school with Vince Neal's son. We used to call him Neil Neil. Oh,
0: was really?
1: He, yeah, he was a grade younger than me.
0: So, yeah, their high school names were Vince Wharton and Tommy Bass. Okay. I had an encounter with, I believe was Tommy Lee's younger sister, years later, and she bought me beer with a friend of mine. Because you're like- because I said, do you know that I am the coolest guy in drama class, in the whole drama class? And she said, I'll buy you beer. No, she was a friend of a friend. And that's that cool. somehow, and my friend was like, that's Tommy Lee's sister. I'm like, Oh, and I saw the way she walked. I go, really? It looked like Tommy Lee's walk, but. Oh, that's crazy. I can't, Im- I don't know if it's real or not. I have no idea. But I'll take it for a story in case I need it.
1: And you needed it because you just used it. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Vernon comes in, played by Paul Gleason. We know him from Die Hard, Dwayne T. Robinson from Die Hard. In fact, Kate and I did an episode on Die Hard, Drunk Die Hard, Season 1, Episode
0: 8. I remember that.
1: Go back and listen to it. (laughs) (laughs) So he comes in and he addresses the kids super condescendingly. It's now 7.06, and you have exactly eight hours and 54 minutes to think about why you're here. That is a long-ass detention. Nine hours?
0: Yeah. And I like his, well, well, here we are.
1: John makes a joke about how he's dressed like Barry Manilow. I thought he looked more like a single guy, like out on the prowl. Like he's going to (laughs) hit up the safari bar or something after, after, you know, detention.
0: The safari bar.
1: Looking for the ladies, yeah.
0: Or the red onion. The red onion? Was oh, that still?
1: Yeah, the red onion yeah. and um the safari bar. I think those were the hot spots in the SGV <laughs> back right. in the day. Yeah.
0: The hot spots. We missed it. We missed those hot spots. Uh, yeah,
1: I'm okay days. with that.
0: What were the hot spots? TGI Fridays?
1: The Rude Dog.
0: The Rude Nah, that wasn't my hotspot. TGI Fridays was my hotspot for a year. Again, smash cut the underage people buying you drinks. We knew a bartender or something.
1: Well, you had the hookup. That's why you got to do it.
0: It's either a famous rock star sister or some random waitress and bartender at a, at a restaurant. At a TGI
1: Fridays. At a TGI
0: Fridays. <laughs> you know, you're just...
1: Well, and you know, also, they didn't really do a lot of ID checking back in the day. It was pretty no. easy.
0: Yeah. So we all have our fake ID stories. <laughs> but I digress.
1: Okay. So Mr. Vernon tells the kids, don't talk. Don't move from your seat. Don't sleep. Don't sleep. And then he gives them, you know, the assignment. You each have to write a thousand word essay describing who you think you are. Okay. So Mr. Vernon's office is across the hall. He doesn't want any monkey business. John is mouthy. He's quick to tell him, don't mess with the bull. You'll get the horns. How often do you find yourself quoting this in your life?
0: Quite often. Me too. (laughs) Sadly. (laughs) Mess with the bull. You'll get the horns. I don't really do that one, but. That's I do quote a lot of my. What's your What's your favorite quote?
1: Well, when he says uh, in regard to the door, like screws fall out all the time, the world's an imperfect <laughs> place. Right. Like that's a favorite of mine. Yeah. So.
0: <laughs> I do um, I do one where it's not so much a word for word quote, but it's a cadence. So let's say I'm hanging out with some friends and there's some dead air, and I'll go so, so. And that's the beginning of, are you two like boyfriend, girlfriend? Oh. But I, I won't go, but it, it'll be just that part. I'll go, so, so. <laughs> that little beat in the beginning that is so ingrained in my head that if I start anything with so, it has to be a fourth higher <laughs> note, the next one, just because it's that exact quote.
1: And, and because the world's an imperfect place, Kenny.
0: That's a perfect quote to use at any time.
1: Because it's very true.
0: Because it is.
1: So John is hella bored. And agitated, and he's just trying to get a rise out of everyone there, strictly for his own personal entertainment. So this is when he makes the joke about impregnating the prom queen, and Andrew tells him to stop. You don't even count at the school. Hmm. And Claire says, you shit on everything because you're afraid. You don't belong, so you have to dump all over it. Yeah, she's not wrong.
0: Right, and he does his, well, (laughs) maybe I'll just go out and join... The wrestling team, student <laughs> council. Right.
1: <laughs> so Brian, Brian, he is part of academic clubs. I didn't write down his club, something like the physics club. I don't know. Maybe he's in a chess club. And yep. Claire is quick to point out that academic clubs aren't the same as the social clubs that she's
0: part of. Because John's line is, ah, but to dorks like him, they are. What do you do in your academic clubs? Well, we do neat E-T-S-A-T. said, oh, I see. It's sort of social. Demented and sad, but social. Yeah.
1: Demented and sad, but social. (laughs) John takes a screw out of the library door lock hinge thing. And the door shuts. And Vernon comes in hot. He's got to know who closed the door. They all play dumb. Screws fall out all the time. The world's an imperfect place. Yeah. So this is one of a few hot moments between John and and Mr. Vernon. They get into kind of like a pissing contest regarding respect for authority. And Vernon keeps giving out detentions to John because John won't shut up and back down. And John ends up with eight detentions, two months of detention.
0: It's in this sort of exchange where we see Claire sort of plea with him. Stop, she says, or she says under her breath, stop, like, stop. And he's like confused and he keeps going, I think for one or two more after she says that. But I think this is one of the many scenes where you see them sort of go back and forth, not just Claire and John, but the group of them. Like for 13 seconds, they'll be all against John. And then for the next two minutes, it'll be Andrew and John on the same side against Claire. They switch sides so frequently. it's, It's almost confusing. It's very much like a play, but it's very much, I think, a microcosm of what maybe high school can be like. It's like one second you're in alliance with one group of people. And then the next second it it just it changes and it goes back and forth. Cause all of a sudden you see Claire have this compassion for John and this, his standing up to authority for what seems to be no real good reason, but she right. has this compassion for him. She's like, stop. And he can't. No. It begs the question of like, does he have anything to do on Saturdays? Yeah. Maybe he just wants to, belong and be with whomever is there. You know, I, I also, are, you could argue that if all people, if all the people there are unlikely people, presumably never been there before. Right. Where are where are the usual suspects? I mean, there's John. That's a really he, good question. Yeah. Is it usually just him by himself just sitting there, you know, uh, hawking loogies and swallowing them? Or is there other people typically there?
1: Which, by the way, speaking of that, that was an improvisation on Judd Nelson's part.
0: So let me ask you this: How many times have you tried to hock a loop and catch? I
1: have know? not ever tried to do that. Never anybody? tried? I haven't. Am I missing out?
0: It, it's just colder coming back in. Than <laughs> so gross. It leaves. Yeah, it's Dude. definitely colder. <laughs> but I would say before it all, it's all said and done. I'd say you got to try it. I mean, and really? It, and the, yeah, you have to. I,
1: I, I mean. really don't. I've made it this far. <laughs> I think I'm doing all right.
0: Yeah, maybe you don't have
1: to. <laughs> okay, so they're so bored right like detention is hell this place is horrible John starts lighting fire to his shoes in which he also lights a cigarette Allison does her infamous drawing and adds snow to the house that she drew by shaking dandruff onto her drawing which was actually parmesan cheese mm. yeah John is ripping books and rearranging the card catalogs
0: <laughs> which I thought was amazing
1: I was Hilarious.
0: <laughs> it's so subtle.
1: He's just talking and he's just shuffling them, right?
0: Yeah, you have to think, you go, what the hell is he doing? And then you go, Oh my god, he's mixing the frigging well, catalog.
1: Kids today would have no idea what he's no. doing. But here is where we see the first hint of flirtation between Claire and John. Hmm. When he mispronounces Molier, Molière. Mm-hmm. I just mispronounced it. See how I just did that? Molière. Yep. And she corrects him. Here's a little bit of trivia. The Chicago Public Library donated over ten thousand books for this film. Wow! Just so John could, you know, rip a bunch of pages out of them.
0: Well, I can say that the whole Molière Molière bit. So you can imagine, for a kid that's watching it for the TV version, it's a little confusing. And he says Molet. <laughs> the, 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 the movie line is Mole really pumps my nads. I think that's his okay. Name. But the TV version was Molière really <laughs> blows my mind, and if it because it's because it's overdubbed, it gets all screwed up. When Claire corrects him, and then ha- plays that uh, classical music for like that three seconds, and it was very flirtatious, and it was like, oh, okay, there's something, there's something here, there.
1: yeah. Okay, so this is where the kids start revealing a little bit about themselves as they begin to slowly die of boredom and claire says her parents are on the verge of divorce she doesn't think they give a shit about her they're basically using her to get back at each other and this is when john tells claire that she has a fat girl's name and tells her she's going to get fat when she gets older she flips him off he's surprised and sensing she's not as much of a goody-two-shoes, maybe, as he thought she was, he begins to interrogate her on her sexual history. Dude, don't, don't do this. Like, <laughs> It's not funny. It's not okay.
0: It's not funny. I don't know why it was funny then, but it's such a strong theme.
1: It is a strong theme and I think what it is is John gives zero fucks honestly and he wants to know so he's just going to ask he, he doesn't care how it comes off he doesn't care who he's offending he just wants to know
0: well now do you find back in the 80s and maybe the early 90s was there not a preoccupation with this whole topic or i found i feel like it was
1: like people asking you personally or just just in your like adolescent consciousness always thinking like who's a virgin who isn't
0: Right. It's a little bit of both. It's okay. a little, I, I have stories of both.
1: I don't know. I, I'm i sure. Yes, obviously there was. And, you know, Kate and I, I don't know if you listened to it. We did the episode on when Brenda and Dylan have sex for the first time on 90210.
0: Of course I did that. I was, I was jealous I wasn't on that one because that was so a huge fun. episode.
1: It was such a good episode. Not, not the actual episode, like the podcast episode. Thank you very oh. much. Yeah, it was really good. And so the whole, like, who's doing it, who isn't? Oh, these people have been, you know, in a relationship for a long time. Oh, my God, they've been together three months. Do you think they're doing it? Like, there was a lot of that in high school. And... I think we used to talk pretty openly about it. I'm trying to think like even in mixed groups, I I think that was pretty general conversation, but the interrogation was really aggressive. And I mean, it's a, it's a total dick move. I think even at that time, if I was being questioned in that way, I would, I would have just shut down. I would have reacted very much like Claire.
0: There was a lot of shaming slash embarrassment about it. I mean, it sounds like you had a a healthy dose of it.
1: Mm. I don't know, because like Allison says later to Claire when she asks her, are you a virgin? If you say yes, you're a prude. If you say no, you're a slut. Or are you just a tease? Right. It's like, these are your these are your three choices. Which one do you want to be? True.
0: There was a shift where people or young kids had more of, it wasn't so, it didn't appear to be so intense, like such a focus on it. I felt like back in the 80s, there was such a focus on it. I liken it to the Disney Channel and cable and the internet. There was so much out there for kids, for their age range, that they didn't have to subject themselves to this hurry up and grow up. Kids of the 80s, we were just caught in between being an adolescent and being a grown-up, and we all were just trying to grow up as quickly as possible, which included sex, which included whatever, drugs and whatever it was. I think kids nowadays, they have a place to be, and they feel like they belong. I'm not saying there's not outcasts, and I'm not saying they don't have struggles, but I just feel like that sex talk is not as... Not as weird and shameful as it maybe was in the 80s.
1: I I think a lot of the teen comedy or even just general films for teens were really, they really bordered on raunchy, a lot of them in the 80s. And it was just kind of like the culture of filmmaking back then. And so I think what John Hughes and even Cameron Crowe did that was so great was that they developed their characters enough that they were more well-rounded. It's like sex is a part of it, but like, let's talk about it. Let's have a dialogue about it and what that means. There's more nuance to these things than just having sex or not having sex. There's the feelings that are involved in it. It's what does it mean for the person that you are if you make these choices? What does society think about you? Are you really ready I think what's so beautiful about their films is that they kind of delve into those questions without making them seem like lessons.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what I'm overlooking uh, is that in the totality of an hour and a half movie, it was probably four and a half minutes dedicated to it, maybe five. It's barely anything. We have this scene and we have, you mentioned the Allison scene and the was talking Really? I mean, it's maybe five minutes. It, again, there's a Brian scene with the whole Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls, rather. Yes. And a whole, it really isn't as much as I'm painting it to be the, the 80s or a bunch of shameful, you know, sex crazed time where we all, you know, you're a better off not being a teenager.
1: Yes. Andrew doesn't like the way John's talking to Claire. He demands that he leave her alone. He wrestles John to the ground. This is when John pulls a knife, which was actually Judd Nelson's personal knife. And he stabs it into a chair. Right. We meet Carl, once Shermer's man of the year student turned janitor.
0: Which is v- overlooked if you don't pay attention to the first two minutes of the movie.
1: Yes. That's pan two in the beginning. Yes.
0: Amazing. I didn't catch that again until maybe my 40th time in 1907. <laughs> that were I were like,
1: wait it. a minute. There's Carl.
0: I had to press rewind you know, on my VHS and go, what? Was that Carl?
1: Oh, that's Carl. And Rick Moranis was originally cast in the role, but he had creative differences
0: with Hughes over the character. Yeah, Rick Moranis would have made it a little too.
1: I think he wanted to like play him with like a Russian accent. Like he had, it was a very like character driven, you know, vision that he had. And I think Hughes thought like this is a little bit overpowering for.
0: It would have taken it a different direction. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So John asks Carl, how does one become a janitor? And Carl's smart enough to know that John's being a punk. And he tells the kids, I go through your letters. I go through your lockers. I listen to your conversations. I am the eyes and ears of this institution. And then they all look scared shitless.
0: (laughs) Especially John, because when he hears lockers, he goes, "Uh uh-oh. He knows what's in his locker, not to mention the words he's sharpened onto his logger.
1: Yes. This is when John asks Brian if he's ever gotten laid. And, you know, this is the Niagara Falls. She lives in Canada. You wouldn't know her. He insinuates that he and Claire have hooked up. And this is when Claire tells him, you know, it's okay
0: to be a virgin. Right. And everybody looks with this bewildered like, what? John it looks is? like, oh my what? God, like, 16 and a virgin can't be. You can't possibly that's exist. so
1: crazy to me because yeah, I get it. Teenagers have sex, but at 16, I don't know that the majority of teenagers are having sex. I hope not. I, I mean, <laughs> right? <laughs> Jeez Louise. I mean, we're parents. The world's an imperfect place. The yeah. world's
0: an imperfect place.
1: <laughs> okay, so it's lunchtime. Claire has her little bento box of sushi. Andrew has the entire grocery store. That is a lot of food that cracked me up. I mean, like, I get it. You're an athlete, you're a wrestler, but like,
0: but I mean, going back to the whole sushi thing, it's funny. It's like the year is 1984 when they shot it. Right. So I know that the sushi thing is like exotic and like, you know, it's like crazy.
1: So what did you use to bring to lunch? Or were you one of those kids that went to the cafeteria?
0: Um, if you're asking high school specific, I went to the cafeteria. Because in high school, there was, and I know you know, but for the sake of the pod, there was the front where you'd buy your sorted hamburgers and whatever, and people would wait in line. And then you go inside the cafeteria, then if you make that first stop for where food is served, you get some more of the same. Now it's a different line. There's a further place where you can get food. It was like this last door before you left like the south end exit. And if you got into that line, you wouldn't get your sorted hamburgers. You get like these, what would they call pork bellies, which was chips and chili. And they had these different, maybe fish. And there was a, a salad bar on that side too. What? Yeah, there was a salad bar. And a lot of teachers were eating over there. If you were lucky enough to get over there and then you were into different types of food, you can go over there and you can eat. And that's where I would prefer to go because I didn't like to wait in line. And everybody else was waiting in those lines.
1: I got to tell you, Kenny, I never one time ate cafeteria food and it was because I didn't know how it worked. oh can I admit that on the pod that is the stupidest thing in the world. Some kids had a card. Where'd you get the card? How, how do you do it?
0: So your lunches were sushi bento boxes or what was your you oh
1: you know when I was like a sophomore, my lunch of choice from the vending machine, the Chocolate Hostess Donuts, the little tiny ones, and Delicious. a Wild Cherry Pepsi. <laughs> and let me tell you what, I ate that every single day.
0: You were it's in good company. so
1: disgusting.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. The sugar rush must have been amazing.
1: It's really not.
0: Did you dip the, cho- the, the donuts I did not. into the cherry? No, mm-hmm.
1: I didn't. And by the time we could drive, we went to Del Taco for lunch because they allowed yeah. smoking inside. Yes. Ooh, it was one of the few Inside? Places. Inside, you could smoke and eat your dill taco. Wow.
0: Who's the criminal now?
1: I, I wasn't actually smoking. My friends are smoking, but I did drive them there. But yeah, it's pretty gross. So no, I was not bringing bento boxes. Okay. So Allison has a sandwich with that gross olive loaf meat. <laughs> she tosses it out of the sandwich and throws it onto the statue. And she's like, I'm going to make my own sandwich, which consists of white and wheat bread, Pixie sticks." butter and captain crunch cereal
0: time to be fully transparent how many times have you had that sandwich
1: i mean zero but i did drink a wild cherry pepsi and some chocolate donuts yeah
0: true that's that's a sugar rush that's comparable
1: pretty gross so you made the sandwich
0: yeah i think i substituted the pixie sticks with probably sugar
1: ah so how was it
0: not great but no. not bad but I don't. you don't walk away going, I had a nutritious meal and I'm ready to take on the day.
1: <laughs> Unlike Brian's nutritious meal, which John mocks and makes fun of Brian's perfect family life. So this is when Brian's like, oh, yeah, well, like, what about your family? And this is when John does an impression of his father. You stupid, worthless, no good, goddamn freeloading son of a bitch. R word, because I'm not going to say it. Big mouth, know-it-all, asshole, jerk. And then he motions a smack and yells, fuck you. And there's abuse. And Andrew doesn't believe it until John shows him the scar of a cigarette burn on his arm. Thoughts?
0: Yeah. um, First thought is Judd Nelson does a great job on that scene. Yeah, he does an amazing job. Uh, You don't believe me? No, I don't. No, you don't? The way he delivers that line, it's quotable. Mm Mm-hmm. It is intense. And you go from laughing at the impression to suddenly really sad in like two seconds. And it's yeah. and it's the classic line, um, you don't believe me? He said, no, did I stutter? Classic right. line, which right. we've all used a million times. And then he that's when he walks up with the cigar and he said, it looks like the size of a cigar burn. Do I stutter? Right. And it was kind of that mocking back and forth. The scene that happens right after that, because- John blows up about it, and Claire says, uh, you shouldn't have said that. And Andrew says remorsefully, like, well, how would I know? He lies about everything anyways. Right. Again, it's that sh- it shows the characters are now, they can be adversaries one moment, and then they're l- really close friends the next moment, which almost leads you to believe, like, they know each other. And they do, because they kind of know each other, but they it's almost this high school clique. Everybody's got to be in this clique. And when it comes down to brass tacks they are friends, but then they have to pretend they're not. And that's this whole, that's my, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I mean, I just thought now we better understand John. We know there's a reason for all of this aggression and hostility. And, and I mean, he's just so clearly jealous of what he thinks everyone else has that he doesn't. And, you know, as we learn more about the characters and they share their stories we learn that nobody has it perfect but i think we can all agree that john probably has it the worst so it's critical to the story in that john doesn't show himself to be really very human <laughs> very often in this and and or vulnerable and this is the first time that he lets down his guard you get the impression that he's perhaps never told anybody this before and here he's telling this group of strangers because they're in this space where they suddenly feel safe enough with each other that they can be vulnerable. So it's a, it's a very powerful moment. And so it helps everyone at least better understand John and be able to empathize with him and why he reacts the way he does and says the things he does and why there's so much hatred and anger in his heart. And it's because he has a terrible home life.
0: That's what it comes down to. It, and that's where the deep storytelling really shows oh absolutely, itself. yeah, no, I mean, you think it's all fine and games, and there are moments where it's fun and it's hap- and it's jokey, uh, but that is a perfect example. that scene is where it goes back to like what you were mentioning earlier. it's you know part of it's sex, part of it's just growing up, and part of it is this whole conflict with your parents, which they touch on several times in the movie, and
1: it's so funny because it's like you watch this movie. And, you know, we're all still children, whether our parents are living or not, we are always our parents' children. And you watch this and you're like, I empathize with these teenagers. Like I feel this in a really big way, but now you're also the parent and you're like, Okay, well, wait a minute. I want to hear the parents' point of view. Like, is it really like this? Or is this just the way they're they're perceiving it because they're teenagers? I mean, not, not in the instance of John and abuse, certainly. But I'm just talking about like Claire thinking, you know, my parents are trying to use me to get back at each other. Like, are they really? I mean, maybe they are, but maybe they're not. Maybe there's a lot more to this story than you know, Claire. And right. so I start wondering, like, from the parents' perspective, like, maybe they're doing the best they can, Kenny. Maybe <laughs> they have to work a lot and they're not around for Allison. <laughs> maybe they're trying to make ends meet. Maybe there's more to the story. And because I want so much to believe that their parents are good people. Right. Because the kids are good people. They're just struggling. And we all struggle as teenagers and As a parent of teenagers, it's just, you know, you think, oh, God, what if my kid was in a Saturday detention for nine hours and shit got real? Like, what would they be saying about me?
0: Right. A hundred percent. I mean, that's, you bring up a very good point. It's, there's always that other side of the story. I mean, you've almost touched on, I think there's a, if if the John Hughes estate will allow it. I mean, there's a, at least a six-part series of on Hulu that'll tell the perspective of the parents of where are they coming from. And there's a story there. And if This Is Us has taught me anything, I mean, any every character can have their own TV show.
1: Oh, yeah. And every person, even in shared experiences, we all have our own truth and our own narrative. So it, we all experience the same situations differently. So I don't know. I want to believe that they have great and loving and caring parents, but maybe they didn't because it was the eighties and who the fuck cares, Kenny? It was a different time.
0: <laughs> you can never forget that huge elephant in the room, which is the eighties. <laughs> and
1: It was the eighties, man.
0: There was every, everything. There was no holds barred at that. In the no,
1: thing. it was like original free range parenting, right? Yes. Like it was just go do your thing. I'm not really worried about it. I'm not concerned about it, but don't talk to strangers. Like that was basically <laughs> it, right?
0: It was. Uh, one of the things that catches me about that scene though is you mentioned the, the olive loaf. Yes. It's gross, but what the part that gets me is again, it's my comparison of Allison to John. It's like, so she didn't make that sandwich. Somebody made her that sandwich.
1: Oh, right. Like they drove her to detention and they made her to sandwich. She they let her sit her in the back.
0: They both drove her. I mean, I'm assuming somebody's in the passenger seat again. I don't know.
1: I don't think they I think it's funnier if no one's in the passenger seat. It's
0: hilarious if there's no <laughs> one in the passenger seat. And then they get this very specific sandwich. It's not a bologna sandwich. No, it's an olive loaf. And she takes it out and throws it because she's like, Not this again.
1: My stupid parents.
0: <laughs> Your parents made you a lunch again. Like, okay, that's terrible. But I'm telling you, Allison, they ignore you.
1: I mean, John doesn't even have a lunch. He's ignored.
0: Right. Come on.
1: Okay, so the kids sneak out of the library and they go to John's locker where he retrieves a big old bag of weed. And it was actually, in truth, oregano. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Brian is utterly shocked. The look on his face is so golden during this scene. I mean, I don't know if you caught it, but he's just like, what did we just do? Right. So the kids are trying to get back to the library before Vernon catches them missing. Andrew and John disagree on the way back. Andrew convinces everyone to go his way. They end up at a dead end. So this is when John passes the weed off to Brian. Poor saucer-eyed Brian. And (laughs) sacrifices himself for the good of the group so they can get back without getting caught. And this is when John, like, diverts Vernon's attention. He ends up getting caught in the gym. And Vernon leads him back to the library and tells the kids that he's there for pulling a fire alarm. I don't know. This kind of hurt me when he tells the kids like, you know what, you guys, you think John's so, so funny. Why don't you go visit him in five years and see how funny he is? He just humiliated him in front of that group. It was disgusting. And he took him out of the library and put him in a storage closet. Right. Like, you can't do that.
0: No. I mean, obviously – Mr. Vernon, Richard Vernon, he's got a lot of issues. He's got a lot of, I mean, when we would see it in his talks with Carl and other scenes, I mean, he's got a lot of issues. I mean, he struggles. Um, But yeah, it's, you can tell he's got this beef with John Bender and the whole.
1: He really does. I mean, he threatens him. He straight up threatens him. And John's like, is that a threat? And he's like, who are they going to believe? Like, honestly. And he's so angry. He begs John to punch him in the face. And then when he doesn't, he calls him a gutless turned, And I think it took everything in John's power not to.
0: I agree. I mean, it's got to be startling and it's shown in his face. And as much as you think at 16 years old, 17 years old, as much as you think you're equal to these teachers slash adults, like if it gets down to that level, I think it's crossed a certain line where you're oh, thinking yeah. Man, this is really getting to a level that I didn't expect coming here at 7 in the morning on Saturday, albeit for the 24th time. (laughs) I wasn't expecting this to happen. Not
1: today. Not today. (laughs) So this is when John escapes the storage closet and climbs up into the air vent. And he's telling a joke about a blonde, a poodle, and a two-foot salami that actually has no punchline. I will have you know.
0: I can imagine people have written the punchline. I'm, I've, I've thought about it.
1: Hey, but. I mean, I'm sure it's a good one. So John falls through the library ceiling, and this is when he hides under the table—the table that that bothers you so much, Kenny, with the
0: yes. Front. This, now it's all coming full circle. Here's my yes. Here's my construction issue.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this is when Mr. Vernon comes in demanding to know what the ruckus was. So John's under the table that. Claire is sitting at. And he puts his face right between her legs. Guys, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. If I need to say it. And so-
0: This is the, another, what, the third, fourth scene that makes it hard to watch it with a young teenager.
1: Yes, exactly. So they're all covering for him. We don't know. We don't know what what you're talking about. uh, I don't know. And so Mr. Vernon leaves. And this is when John- retrieves his weed from Brian. And one by one, they all follow him to go and smoke out. And this is when we get to see Andrew's cool aggro dancing gymnastics. And you know that scene where he screams and he breaks the glass? Years later, Hughes called that scream an extraordinarily bad idea.
0: Yeah, I'm very glad to hear him say that. (laughs) I've been thinking about this for years. (laughs) I've been
1: been mad about it for a
0: while i've been mad about it for a while i remember having this conversation with a friend back in those days and she was saying like that's the dumbest scene ever and i was like why are you being so harsh on it but i looked at it and i go you know what you're right all of a sudden it takes this comical impossible sort of angle although you know they are Stoned at the time. So maybe that's sort of part of it. Like maybe it didn't really break, they just thought it broke. Like I'm right. trying to look trying to take it from a, a surreal sort of perspective. But it's
1: not like it was so high pitched that it would have broken the glass. Like right.
0: Uh, but I'm glad to hear him say that. Now, and, and I think had he not had that, like would it have suffered? Absolutely not. Yeah, had they not had that glass breaking scene, I wouldn't yeah. it wouldn't be like, Oh, there's I love the scene, but something's missing, like. She's everything, but where's the tattoo? It never would have come up, you know? You would just move on. Well,
1: I was thinking, like, was this supposed to be the connection to the beginning title card with the Bowie quote that shatters? Wow. Was this the moment? Is that what that was?
0: Wow. You blow my mind with that thought. That's real deep. Yeah, I try, Kenny. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, I don't know. But, like, if it is
0: they can relate it to this is the moment that they are quite aware of what they don't need your consultations and they're quite aware of what they're going through and it, now through the storytelling that we've reached at that point now it, it's like we realize whether they realize it or not they are aware of what they're going through they're very aware with
1: yeah they are
0: their parents situation and what they're thinking
1: that was the only thing i could figure but hey he's called it a bad idea and you know i'm inclined to agree This is when Carl catches Mr. Vernon in the basement reading the confidential employee files and demands $50 for his silence. (laughs) So back in the library, the kids are going through each other's stuff. Allison has a shit ton of stuff. She calls her home life unsatisfying (laughs) and reveals that she wants to run away to someplace better. And this is when Allison reveals that her parents ignore her. Mm -hmm. By taking her to Saturday detention... And making Making her a
0: lunch. olive loaf. Yeah.
1: Oh, Allison. Yeah. Right. And really, whose home life isn't unsatisfying when you're a teenager? Everything sucks when you're a teenager. Your parents are the stupidest.
0: Right. I mean, please.
1: Our kids don't think that, Kenny, but like.
0: Right. No. Our our kids accept it, but yes.
1: Mr. Vernon tells Carl that he thinks that the kids today are just getting worse and- He's afraid for the day that they're in charge. And I wrote, ha, 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 sucka. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think every generation kind of thinks that, right? Absolutely. They call Allison, you know, basically the basket case. And it's clear. I mean, she has some issues. She tells the kids this whole story about how she's a nymphomaniac. She had sex with her married shrink this is the conversation with Claire, you know, have you ever done it? Are you a tease? And Claire finally admits, yes, I'm a virgin. And Allison says, yeah, me too. I'm not a nymphomaniac. I'm a compulsive liar because that's better.
0: Right. Yeah. I think about it. I go, Allison really is just that, just I, honestly, she, I think she's making things more than what they are.
1: I mean, it seems like she's dramatic and I, and I don't want to, you know, make fun of Anyone that's ever felt other or misunderstood because God knows, like, isn't that the hallmark of being a teenager, but it doesn't really seem like you don't get a clear picture with Allison as to really why she's the way that she is.
0: To your point, like if Allison's going through what she's going through, I don't want to say, oh, you know, buck up and pull yourself up.
1: But you know, Kenny, our parents would have.
0: Yeah, of course. It's easy for me to say, Allison, like eat your olive loaf bread and write in your cutlass Sierra, whatever it was <laughs> and just be grateful. It's easy for me to say that but
1: like write in your journal and listen to you know the Smiths, it'll all be okay. <laughs> Maybe they could have developed her backstory a little better so that we could have understood her a little bit more. right. Andrew admits that he taped a kid's butt cheeks together oh, okay. because he thought his dad would get a kick out of it, but he doesn't feel really good about doing that. And he feels really bad about the humiliation that he caused this kid. He cries. And he admits that he hates his dad. And he goes on to talk about how his dad pushes him to be number one and how he has to win at all costs.
0: Watching the movie, I'd never really thought about this scene. I guess it wasn't until years and years and years later that I actually listened to what he was saying from the person he taped the butt cheeks of. And that sort of shame and that humiliation. I never really thought about it as anything big. But rewatching it, I was like, man really thought about it going, I can't imagine. I mean, that must, that really must have been tough. I'd never, again, never really thought about it, but.
1: I mean, it is so embarrassing and you get the impression that the kid that he did this to like was maybe a younger kid or a smaller kid. Cause Brian's like, yeah, I I know him as though he's someone in the lower end of the popularity scale.
0: And that exists. I mean, I have I know stories for of, sure. Not at that level of physical taping of butt cheeks, but I have stories of people throwing sodas on people that were you know left of center, and just because I don't look back and say you know I'm sad and ashamed of myself for not doing more, but I just remember going like, dude, don't do that. Like, what's cool. what's the point?
1: I know. I feel like a Saturday detention for that isn't
0: enough. enough.
1: it's no, not enough it's, of a punishment. Yeah. Like, I'm glad he feels really bad about it because he should. Seriously, Andrew, you're such an asshole. Yeah. So Brian says, I can relate because it's like me and my grades. He failed shop class. He's so ashamed. He was so devastated by this blow to his GPA that he brought. Did he bring a flare gun to school? Is that what he said?
0: He brought a flare gun.
1: Yeah. And so that's why he's in detention.
0: The flare gun. Detail is what causes people to laugh. Because it is kind of... If you know what a flare gun is.
1: Right. This is when they move on to their weird talents. Claire shows the gang that she can apply lipstick by holding the lipstick between her boobs. John makes fun of her for it. So apparently, Judd Nelson was a real method actor. He stayed in character throughout filming so much that it began to cause problems for Molly Ringwald. He was relentless in his teasing. And it was getting so bad that it angered Hughes. Molly told the New York Times in an interview, John was extremely protective of me and it just infuriated him. And he almost fired him. And we all banded together and really talked John out of firing Judd.
0: I think there's so many stories, not only because of method acting, but there's a line one could draw about method acting, especially in your 20s. I mean, I know that it's just relevant, you know, not to make it about my earlier quote unquote career in acting, but and you get on set and you're just like, you want to do that kind of behavior. You're 22, you're 21, or whatever it is. Judd Nelson was 23, 24. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's that time you're just, you got all this energy. You're so hyped up about it. You go a little extreme. And why not? And I respect it to some degree. I mean, we all know James Dean was a method actor. We know Marlon Brando was, and they were all in there 20s, And it could be a little eccentric. I think even yeah, sure. uh, Christian Bale's the same way. I mean, it gets a little bit sideways. Uh, is it necessary? Who knows? I don't know. I can't say. I mean, there's act- obviously brilliant actors that don't do that. But I could see that. And I could see it being...
1: I could see it being problematic for her.
0: 100%. I can see easily slipping into that in those two characters. Like, if he's wisecracking as much as he is, it'd be hard to stop wisecracking if it's just... Yeah.
1: And when you consider that so many of the little, because John Hughes apparently really like let the characters improvise. He let them kind of have a lot of freedom in their roles. And a lot of like the very best parts of John were improvised. By Judd Nelson. So when you think, okay, so he's really razor sharp, he's quick witted, he can really get under your skin. He he has that quality about him. If he's really this guy off the set, it's a lot to handle day in and day out. It would get exhausting.
0: And it's and I agree. And I think it's that thing where and you deal with it in life, whether it's raising your kids or maybe people who work for you. You want to harness their energy because you like their energy and you like, their, it's something that they're doing. At the same time, you want to discipline them and put them, you don't want to put them in a box, but you want to make sure you they have, have guardrails. It's kind of like, when is too much, too much? Like, you know, I find myself disciplining my kids going, am I disciplining too much where it's like, it's hindering the spirit of what they're trying to do? Yes, like maybe I was just going to
1: say that you don't want to break their spirit, but at the right. same time, ugh.
0: yeah, it's that careful balance. Like you just do the best you can. The world's in a perfect
1: place. (laughs) The world's in a perfect place. So John tells Claire she has everything and he has nothing. And he makes fun of her for her diamond earrings that she probably got for Christmas. When we learn all he got was a carton of cigarettes and he makes her cry. This is when Andrew dares to ask the question, Kenny, the age old question. Are we going to be like our parents? And Allison says, it's unavoidable. It just happens. When you grow up. Your heart
0: dies. Brilliant.
1: Do you think when you grow up, your heart dies? I do. <laughs> oh
0: God. L- let's just let's say. About, <laughs> I was expecting
1: you to be like, no, Lori. Let me tell you all the reasons why that doesn't happen.
0: <laughs> no, I, I I think there's a truth in it. Obviously, there's yeah. a truth, in, there's the I think everything we were talking about. You become a little more practical, pragmatic than you were, and there's a bit of that sort of energy that if you compare it to the energy you had when you were young versus the energy you have now and saying, and and you compare the two to determine whether or not your heart has died. It's like a hundred percent. There's a difference, which I can equate to. If I were to be so harsh, I'd say my my heart died compared to what it was. If you compare it to what it was, but it's one of those things where you can't constantly compare because then you can say I gained X, Y, Z. It called for losing some of this sort of other version. Heart dies is strong, obviously, but
1: I think the longer you live in the world, in the real world, there's a level of cynicism that creeps in. There's a lot of disappointment and there's a lot of compromise that comes with growing up and supporting a family and securing a future and having a 401k. And there's such a disconnect between how you thought it was going to be and the reality of it that, yeah, it feels like a little part of your spirit dies. And it's not necessarily a
0: bad thing. I liken it to if I were still wearing, you know, my bad boy club t-shirt, two sizes too small and driving (laughs) a lifted truck in the effort to not have my heart die or my spirit die, then we
1: all know people like that holding on
0: at almost 50 years old. At what cost are you trying for your heart to not die? I mean, at what cost? And there's beauty in being able to navigate with all those responsibilities and still have heart. I say your heart dies just that version of your heart is, there's some some of that that's going to die. You're not going to smoke cigarettes and Del Taco anymore.
1: No, Sorry anymore. you're not because they don't allow it.
0: Exactly.
1: The world's an imperfect place.
0: The world's an imperfect place yeah. and no more Del Beef burritos for you. Yes,
1: no more. No, no, now no you more. have to worry about cholesterol too. So there's that. <laughs>
0: exactly. Yeah.
1: Brian asks, are we all going to be friends come Monday? Claire says no. And John calls her a bitch. And she tells him, I hate you. I'm just being honest. Popularity is everything, right? So she's not going to be friends with the basket case and the criminal and the brain. And Kate and I did an episode on Can't Buy Me Love where we talked about popularity in high school not really being that big of a deal. Like It was a much, much bigger deal in middle school and junior high than it was in high school. It's a weird thing to consider that you can only be friends with this small, narrow group of people who look like you. Did you find in high school, like you could be friends with anybody. It didn't matter. Oh, totally. I mean, it wasn't a big deal, right?
0: It really wasn't. I mean, again, I didn't feel like I was unpopular or popular. I just felt like I was hanging out with my friends. If I went through my yearbook and I I know some of the people because they had seen her most and some of the people, like I had no idea who they were. Like, who are these people? Like. <laughs> I was like, what? They get don't- the votes. Yeah. My point being is there's a whole thing going on with popular people and unpopular, but like nobody really knows or cares, right? I don't think that anybody.
1: I don't think so either, but it's really sad because Brian's like, I consider you guys my friends. And like, you know, they've had all these hours together. They've shared their most intimate secrets. They've been brutally honest with each other. They've experienced this whole range of human emotion in this time, and they're probably closer to each other. On this day, in this moment, than they have been with any of their friends ever. Yes. And so to think that they would go to school on Monday and just ignore each other is so sad.
0: I was thinking about this. I like it into this weird microcosm of, and those these classes where you have this person that you sit next to, maybe because it's your last name and you're just, they go by alphabetical order. But for that hour and that class, you guys are best friends. You don't talk about like my parents, this and that, but you guys are best friends. You guys joke and you guys, everything is cool. But as soon as the bell rings, you go outside. It's like, you don't ever talk to, you say bye and that's it. Like you don't talk right. to them again and you go back to your quote unquote real life or whatever that is. So I can see that's kind of a microcosm to it. I can see it happening where in that detention, yeah, you can bond with people. And I
1: mean, maybe as we see at the end, the way it all unfolds, maybe they are in their lives, each other's lives more than they thought they were going to be. Yeah. So we find out that Allison is in detention uh, because she didn't have anything better to do. And they all laugh. But really, Kenny, we're not laughing because her parents got up early in the morning and they took her to detention and she didn't even have to go. She should have walked.
0: You know, I was on the fence about whether or not Allison was the most hated character in this movie <laughs> when I started this podcast, but I'm slowly believing that yeah, she is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think I, we
1: can all agree. Let us know, you guys, who's the most hated character in The Breakfast Club? I mean, we love them all. Of course we do. They're yeah, all like our children. But like if you had to choose, yeah. it's Allison, right? It
0: is. But then is this where we ask who who's our favorite?
1: Well, we definitely want to know who's the character you most identify with? I mean, we want to know that Kenny, who's yes. the character that you most identify with. I mean, can we safely say John?
0: No, you can't safely say John.
1: Okay. You just borrowed the look.
0: This, is the look, the inspo.
1: Okay. The inspo. So, okay. So it's John looks Brian Hart.
0: Um, That's, that's a very good assessment. Are you going to answer that question or do are we, are you saving it to the end?
1: No, no. I mean, I, I, I would say I was a cross between Brian and Claire because he was a rule follower. Like, yes, sir. Like he knows, he knows the custodian. Like he's, he's (laughs) a nice guy with the purest heart. In fact, Ali Sheedy nicknamed Anthony Michael Hall milk and cookies on this film because he apparently was like the sweetest guy ever. He hated that name. and. I feel like that was probably me, but I was also probably kind of superficial and maybe a little bit vain like Claire. Yeah. So this is when they all dance in the library and Molly Ringwald does that like signature 80s pop dance. That was supposed to be a scene where she danced alone, but she felt so weird about it that they made everybody dance. So, I mean, it's a fun scene, whatever.
0: It is. It would be weird though if that was just her and then everybody else was sitting around watching <laughs> like, her. What, watching her? That's weird. That's yeah. weird. Yeah.
1: John goes back up into the vent to return to the storage closet. And this is when Claire asks Brian if he would write the essay, like a collective essay, for the entire group. Because they're all going to write the same thing anyway. And you know what? They trust him.
0: Flawless logic from the pretty, yeah, from the pretty girl.
1: I'm like, you just got him to do your dirty work. Like, You just sweet-talked him and he bought it, but fine. Claire gives Allison a glow up. Where did all those clothes come from? I know- that Allison had a bunch of stuff in her bag, but she didn't have like pretty clothes.
0: But I didn't see the change of Contempo casuals clothes yes, inside that bag. Me? I didn't see that either. Either
1: I was like, that totally came from like a time. Close, time.
0: <laughs> close time. Close That's time. Close time. Close time. That's the one.
1: Allison walks out. She looks so different. She looks beautiful, and Andrew's like, what? This is when Claire goes to the storage closet and John's like, are you lost? Yes. And
0: she kisses his neck. It was a weird move.
1: It was kind of a sexy move that she just showed up there because when John says, you know how you said your parents use you to get back at each other? Wouldn't I be outstanding in that capacity? Yes, he would.
0: We're missing the part where, and again, back to the quotes, this is less a quote than it is a gesture. When Claire asks, "Were you really disgusted by what I did back there?" Which, yes. and John does the classic nodding of the head, and he says, "No." Yes. It's like, yes, that's the coolest thing ever. It was. If I could tell you how many times I try to fit that in a conversation between the years of 1987 and <laughs> 1989, we wouldn't have enough time on this pod. We'd run out of tape.
1: Yeah. So Claire ends up giving her diamond earring to John and they kiss in front of her dad this is after detention is dismissed they kiss in front of her dad when he picks her up and i was like oh no yeah she's stirring the pot with her family
0: i always found that bizarre i'm like that's a little bit much right the long goodbye she's leaning up against the 1987 bmw they, they kiss like it's a it's a bit much would i sit in my bmw sedan waiting for my daughter to kiss this unruly
1: hell you know, no you would not
0: at minimum, I'd be laying on the horn going, can you hurry up? Like
1: not? That's so disrespectful. <laughs> <But> she <laughs> it did it
0: is. on purpose.
1: So Andrew and Allison kiss, and she rips off the Letterman patch. Yes. Oh, so perfect. Um, so I'm like, okay, are you guys a thing now? Maybe, maybe not. Or she just took the Letterman patch as a souvenir because nothing's going to come of it.
0: Right, it's going to be one of two things—a souvenir. What? Well, no, one of three things that they're going to be a thing. It's going okay. to be a souvenir, or she's going to do voodoo rituals if he decides that he's going to ignore her.
1: I pick that. Yeah. I pick C. I like that.
0: <laughs> and that's a. F- then it goes into it segues into the movie, the craft.
1: Another beloved Gen X classic. Yes. yes. So when Brian's dad picks him up from school, that's actually John Hughes.
0: Oh, that's wild.
1: Yeah. Okay, so this is when Don't You Forget About Me begins to play. And this song was written for the film by Keith Forsey. And he wrote the song after watching rehearsals. And of course, it was performed by the talking heads, I said. Simple Minds. Simple Minds. With Something
0: heads. with the upper regions of your body. <laughs> either a head or the mind.
1: Simple Minds. Okay, so... The soundtrack peaked at number 17 on the Billboard Top 200. And Don't You Forget About Me, performed by The Simple Minds, reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Awesome song.
0: It's amazing. To this Fantastic. day. Fantastic!
1: Yes, it's still so good.
0: As soon as you hear that intro, you're, you, you make a couple decisions. You're either going to just let it play or you're going to sing the hey, hey, hey part, right? You make
1: So good. No matter
0: where you are, you could be in the middle of a...
1: Whole Foods, the post
0: office. (laughs) I also read some trivia that Billy Idol was supposed to record that song and do that for the movie, but he turned it down. Did you say that already? Did I just? No,
1: you just uh, said it. I didn't even know that.
0: And I guess he recorded it on one of his greatest hits records. So I have to listen to it because it almost sounds like him, right? I mean, I think at the time I thought it was him.
1: Interesting. So this is when we hear Brian reading the essay again and he signs it. The Breakfast Club. And in the very last scene, we see the iconic image of John walking through the football field with his sunglasses and his trench coat, where he gives that infamous arm pump into the air, which was actually an improvisation by Nelson. How do you feel about that?
0: See, I have my thoughts on it. And by the way, the cadence and the tone of my voice, I'm sure its you can sense it's not the most...
1: It's not beloved to you?
0: It's not beloved, it's not, you know, unilaterally great in my mind, but Oh,
1: I thought it was fantastic. I loved it. In fact, I loved it so much. I wanted to recreate that when my son graduated high school. Oh, nice. With this graduation gown, he refused. So. <laughs> <laughs> he loved the movie, but not that much.
0: <laughs> right. You know, I don't I don't know. I mean, I it's it's iconic and obviously I love the song and everything. I think even when I was young, I was like Mm, but why, why the, this, what is it? Are we celebrating that you kissed the princess? Are we celebrating that you made it through another Saturday? I just didn't know. I wasn't clear with the fist. I'm going to call it a pump. I don't know what it is, but
1: yeah, I'm calling it a fist pump too. I'm not exactly sure.
0: Like I didn't know what he was celebrating per se. Maybe I was too young to realize he's seen life at a different on a, at a different level now. And he's, he's happy and he's, he sees hope and he's turning over. I, I think he's,
1: that's what it is. Like, I feel like now he feels a sense of belonging. That he doesn't have to be so much on the outside. Okay. He opened up his heart. He was vulnerable. Now there's this girl. He's got these friends. I don't know. I mean, he's in for another eight weeks of detention, which really sucks for him. But like...
0: Which will be weird if nobody else is there. Again, it's going to be just him and Vernon or... Maybe Allison will go back or maybe she'll be busy with Andrew. Again, it's more of the reboot of what happens on Monday. Right. But if you put it that way, which I never really thought about it, was maybe that's what it is. Maybe he's truly at the risk of looking cheesy and corny about it. He's just like, I'm happier than I was when I entered this this place at, at
1: 7.06 this morning. Yeah. So as an end of filming gift, Hughes gave each actor a piece of the library's banister. So hopefully they all have that. Did you know that the film's poster featuring the five kids, like sitting all close together, you know, the iconic? Yes. Okay. That was photographed by Annie Leibovitz. That's amazing. Yeah. I didn't know that. So in talking about the legacy of this film, obviously it's so truly beloved by you, by me, hopefully by the Untitled Gen X audience. And Molly Ringwald said, upon the 30th anniversary in 2015, I always love the script Love the movie, but I never imagined we would be talking about it 30 years later. I never imagined it would still speak to my kids. I feel like it keeps speaking to generation after generation.
0: From the production to the end, and maybe because of the minimalistic sort of production that it doesn't have room to really be dated, like with pop culture references as far as uh, visually. And and I think, you know, in other movies, you might see sort of things that date it, like the cars in the background, you know, yes. albeit there's the cars in the beginning and the end, right. but it's really nothing of substance. I mean, the cars, even the architecture or advertisements. Yes. It can date the whole thing. I think this movie, albeit very simple, that simplicity makes it timeless. Where you can, I mean, Andrew in jeans and a tank top, and the girls dressed the way they are—it's it's, it's really timeless. It doesn't really bump you like this is an old movie. Like it, bumps right? You. With it the doesn't.
1: singular exception of like the card catalogs,
0: <laughs> right, right, right. But that's
1: a small moment,
0: <laughs> right? It's, exactly. It's that's a very small. You'll miss it if you don't even. Right, right. It's a very subtle, like secondary to what he's primarily doing. Right. But I think that the black intro with the mustard yellow sort of font and the basic font and the prints with the music playing, it just, it makes it timeless. This could be anywhere USA, anytime USA.
1: And the characters are different enough, even if you want to consider them to be like teenage tropes. Okay, fine. But they're different enough that we can all identify with pieces of them if not the character as a whole, elements of them that were like, oh, I'm a little bit this and I'm a little bit that. And so this idea of people sharing a space and coming together and ultimately figuring out what they share in common without any sort of regard to you know, where you are socially in school or how much money you have or how smart you are. It's like, these are the human things that we can all agree on. It's a beautiful theme and it's a wonderful reminder. And I think that's what makes this so timeless at the heart of it is that it's a lesson that we kind of need to be reminded of. And it made a really big and lasting impression, obviously, in pop culture, but also in how we tell teenage stories. I found an article in The Atlantic called The Emotional Legacy of The Breakfast Club, and it was written by David Sims. And he suggested that this film really like paved the way for films like Stand by me, dead poet society, say anything, school ties. And it even suggested it says, even the more artsy hits of the early 90s, like Days and Confused, and yes, Boys in the Hood, feel loosely connected to the character driven origins of the Breakfast Club. That approach eventually filtered into television, with high school dramas like My So Called Life becoming the standard bearer for emotionally mature storytelling. Wow. Yeah. Thank you, John Hughes.
0: Absolutely. And it's totally true. I mean, the legacy is amazing. When you you really line it out that way with those titles and those TV shows, you can't help but see it. Maybe you don't think of it, but when you say it out loud, you go, man, I can see it.
1: It's amazing. Any last thoughts on The Breakfast Club?
0: I think it's an amazing show, movie. No, this is an amazing show, and I feel very happy, proud, excited to be on it.
1: Honestly, I am so excited that you took the time I can't believe all these years later, we're still connected on social media. It's amazing. It is. Like in the time of The Breakfast Club, you were an upperclassman. That would have been it. All I would have had to remember you by is my little, <laughs> you know, yearbook inscription. That would have been all that I had from you. And now look at us. We're podcasting together.
0: We're podcasting together. Hopefully not the last time.
1: you were an awesome guest. And I'll definitely be asking you to come back. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Okay, and to you, Gen Xers, thank you so much for listening. There are a lot of pods out there, and your time and attention are a genuine gift. You can find us on the web at TheUntitledGenXPodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at TheUntitledGenXPodcast. We hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye.
0: Bye.